Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. Good morning. How are you guys? Good? Awesome. There's a few people doing good. What about the rest of you guys? You all right? Fair to partly cloudy. Doing great. Awesome. Um, so I... I preached a message first service, and I, I started talking about something, and I, I just, I really want to just go into that in this service. Um, so if you have your Bibles, open it up to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 1. Every, everybody knows the story, but... I felt like the Lord showed me some real specific things during worship in the first service, and I want to just talk to us about. Um, it says, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman's been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. When they persisted and asked him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone. And the woman, where she was, in the center of the court, straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said to him, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. God, I just thank you for your word. I thank you that it's alive. I thank you that as we read and speak and meditate and think on it that, it, that it actually produces something in us, that it changes us, God. And I pray today, Holy Spirit, that as I speak, you'd open our ears to hear, our minds to understand, and our hearts to receive the implanted Word of God, that the seed of the Word would go into the soil of our hearts, and it would produce fruit in our lives. God, that a world that doesn't know you would taste the fruit of our lives and see that you're good. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's Jesus, and I'll, I'll just talk about a little bit of this, and I, I feel like there's something real specific he's asking me to talk to us about as a, as a church family. Um, here's Jesus. He's, he's teaching in the temple, you know, doing what he does. He goes in the temple, and he's teaching people, and he's answering questions, and he's just kind of minding his own business. And the Pharisees are always looking for a way that they can trick him. They're always looking for a way that they can have grounds to accuse him. See, that's all the enemy wants in your life is a way to accuse you. He doesn't care what it takes. He'll use other people if that's what's necessary. He just wants a response from you that's less than love so then he can come and accuse you. It's the way that he works, right? He brings this thing to you, and then the response that it gets from you, he goes, aha! And now he has grounds to accuse. 
And so he's looking to do this to Jesus. Constantly, constantly. Anybody that would be, listen, when people do things to you, it's not them. It's being, they're being used by the enemy. That's why we battle not against flesh and blood. The idea that people are the problem is ridiculous because people are actually the prize, not the problem. If we start seeing them as problems, how can we ever see them as the people that Jesus gave his life to, to, to save? They become the problem. We begin to see them the way the enemy sees them rather than through the eyes of Jesus. And so they're not the problem, but they're being used by the one who is the problem. We battle not against flesh and blood. You realize that includes even your own flesh? No one told me that. My battle is not with my own flesh. Not if I'm born again in Christ. It's the enemy that's the problem. If I don't battle against flesh and blood, that means I don't battle against flesh and blood. Let's just leave that there. That's, what, that's what's written and that's what's said in the Bible. So we'll just believe that. And now when we have a circumstance that seemed like it would come against that or we see something else, then what we do is we take that to the word of God and we say, well, this is what I've experienced, but this is what you say, God. So until my experience ends up with what you say, I'm going to believe what you say and deny experience until the two become one. Otherwise, we start changing what we read based on what we've experienced, and the Bible becomes open for interpretation by experience and by our senses. We start thinking sensually. James calls that demonic. It's a bunch of things. At the end, when it boils down, the wisdom, the using your senses, thinking sensually, using only what you see, taste, smell, touch here to make your decisions and to decide what you believe, in the end, is demonic. I thought that was... I think that's good. I will. Don't worry, I will. And, and so, so you, people are not the problem. Though anybody that will allow themselves to be used, he'll use. Because he wants a reason to accuse you. Why? He doesn't want you to live with a clean conscience. Why? When you're not living with a clean conscience, you can't actually be aware of others around you that need the gospel because you're so caught up in your own guilt, your own shame. That's why the, the enemy is trying to put shame on any of these guys that were up here when Hannah said, I feel like there's shame attached to this thing and she wanted to break that off. It's because as long as you're living in shame, you can't even lift your eyes up to see the world around you, never mind to see his face. And, and, and so... He, he will use anybody that he can. Just quit making people the problem. They're not the problem. They're the prize. See them that way. They're not the reason that you're not doing okay. They're the reason that you're here. I'd be doing so good if you weren't here. No, maybe you're here because they're not doing so good. Maybe he actually wanted to put his kingdom inside of you and put his spirit inside of you so that when the world interacted with you, they would see who he was and see what he's like and want what you have. And then that person gets changed. And it's not so that your life is better. It's so that their life is better. Why? Because you're okay. You're born again. You're a child of God. Your name's written in the book of life. You're filled with joy and peace and love and kindness and gentleness. That's the fruit of the spirit. If those things aren't filling your life, it's not because God's holding back. It's because there's some reason that's blocking that flow of the Spirit of God inside of us, producing the fruit that Jesus promised he would produce. And he didn't say the fruits of the Spirit. Well, I'm just not patient. No, you're just not yielding to the Spirit of God in that area of your life, because if you were, the fruit of patience would be there. Well, you know, I just, you know, I guess I'm just not real, like, kind. Are you kidding me? You're born again. You should be the kindest person that someone meets in the course of a day. Because Jesus is the kindest person that you've ever met, and you're called to be like him and follow him. And he said, when the world, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? What's he saying? He's saying, I came to show you what the Father's like. And then right before he leaves, he says, 
As the Father sent me into the world, so I also send you. What's he saying? He's saying the reason the Father sent me, I'm now giving you that same responsibility, that same task. Oh, and by the way, the Spirit of God, which I needed to fulfill what I was sent on earth to fulfill, you're going to need him too, so I'm going to give him. And if I go, he'll come, and he, the Spirit of truth, will lead you and guide you into all truth. Why? Because the world is begging to know Jesus. They just don't know his name. But they know yours. They may not open their Bible, but they're forced to sit next to you at work, on the airplane, stand in line at the grocery store, at the DMV. There's no check your religion at the door places on earth. Those places that you hate going that you say, I just lose my religion when I go in there. Those are the places that need you to keep it when you go in there more than any others because everyone else has already lost theirs. Good thing you don't have religion. You can't lose it. Because he said, I'll never leave you or forsake you, even if you want him to. You realize that when he said, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you, even to the end of the age. He meant, even if there's times where you want to leave me at the door and just go on inside, I'm not going to do that. I'll be there with you. David, where can I go to hide from your presence? If I went to the highest of heights, if I made my bed and shield, there your presence would find me. David understood in the old covenant that you couldn't escape his presence. Don't beg for it. Thank him for it and be aware of it. We don't have a measure of his presence problem. We have an awareness of it. Because he's not coming and going. He said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. What does that mean? His presence is always with me. If he's in me, then how can he go anywhere? Well, you know, if you feel far from God, then, you know, guess who moved? No, if you feel far from God, thank God that your feelings can lie, but his word never does. And he said he'd never leave you or forsake you. Come on, we say these cute little sayings and we just throw them out there and then we build what we believe on that. And, and we, we just take it as gospel truth, as if Jesus said that. No, Jesus never said, well, if you feel far from me, it's because you moved. He said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You feel far from him because in your mind, you have a bunch of reasons why he wouldn't want to be close to you. But God has one reason that he is. James says, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. He also calls them sinners right before that. So he's talking to people who are not born again, who don't know him as Savior and Lord. And he says, if you draw near to him, he'll draw near to you. But he's calling them sinners. He says, you sinners. Now, where does, where does anyone who's born again ever get identified as a sinner in the, in, the, in the Bible? Ever. Never happens. Paul calls them to the saints at Corinth, to the saints at the church of Ephesus. You were this. Now you're this. You've become this. You're now the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Don't you know that his temple is holy? And that is, I mean, over and over again, the Bible tells you that once you're born again, you're no longer a sinner. You've now become something that new, a new creation in Christ, and that's no longer a sinner because you're in Christ. And if you were a sinner, how could sin be inside of Christ? Because he said the two couldn't dwell together. He said, what, what business do light have with darkness? In other words, if you're in Christ and you think there's a bunch of darkness in you, that's not really true because if you're in him and he is light, there could be no darkness there. You're deceived in your mind. You need to actually believe truth rather than trust experience. And let the truth of God's word be what dictates what you believe rather than your experience or the voice of the enemy or the accuser or anything else that would try to come against us. So we got to be careful and we just say these things. Well, you know, if you feel far from God, guess who moved? It sounds cool, but it's not true. And it makes you think that there's this separation as if his spirit comes and goes like it did in the Old Testament. That's why David said, take not your spirit from me. You never have read Paul. You never read James or Peter or any of the New Testament saints ask God not to take his spirit away. 
Why? Because they understood he was indwelling. He came and he was coming. It was a continually being filled. It was never and don't take your spirit from me because there was a promise that he would never leave. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Why? Because you're not in a probationary period where God says, well, I heard you pray the prayer, but we'll see what your life really looks like and then I can trust you with the full measure of my presence. You're not on probation. He hopes all things and believes all things because he's love. So he believes you when, he's, when you say it and he takes you at your word and wants you to take him at his. He thinks that you actually are worthy of being filled with his spirit and he put his spirit inside of you. He actually thinks that you have become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He believes that. Whether you believe it or not is irrelevant to him. He believes it. The only thing it's relevant to is the way that you live because you'll live by what you believe. So if you don't believe that you're worthy to be filled with his spirit, then whether you are or not doesn't matter because you've convinced yourself in your mind and the enemy has convinced you of something that's not true and you live under the influence of that lie rather than under the influence of truth. It doesn't change truth. It just changes the way that you live. That's why truth brings freedom. It's the only thing that has freedom attached to it in the Bible. For the spirit of the Lord is, he's the spirit of truth. Then you will continue in my words if you abide in them. And the truth, you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. What truth makes you free? The truth you know. How do you know that you know it? You actually believe it and live like it's true. That know there isn't a mental knowledge. It's gnosko. It's this intimate knowledge of something that actually changes the way that you think. So you don't just know a truth because you read it on the, in, the, in the Bible. You know the truth because you're convinced that every word that he spoke is perfect and true. And so you let that change the way that you think. It's what God wants to do. And, and honestly, I feel like it's this morning. It's, it's what he wants me to talk about. Is because there, there, there's Jesus talking and, and the devil comes and he tries to do what the devil does. And he looks for room. That's why he says, don't give the devil a foothold. Why? He can't take a foothold in your life, but he'll take every one you give him. He doesn't miss an opportunity. He doesn't but he can't take one. That's why Jesus could look and say, he has no place in me. Why? Because he gave him no opportunity and the devil couldn't take one. You're not as weak as you think and he's not as powerful as you believe. There's more in you than you realize. You're above and not beneath, the head and not the tail. You're more than a conqueror. What's more than a conqueror? I don't know, but it's at least a conqueror. Come on, we get hung up sometimes on like, well, what's more than a conqueror? Well, let's forget what more is for a moment and say, well, we'll know when he gives us revelation. Let's just say, what's a conqueror? It surely isn't the conquered. (laughs) Think about that for a second. If you're more than something, then you're at least the thing that you're more than. That was free. It wasn't in the notes. So Jesus is teaching. They bring him, the lady in. You notice they only bring the lady. They don't bring the man. Why? They're not really interested in justice. They want to accuse. They don't really want justice because the, the whole law says, and the man also should be stoned. Tom told me this, and I believe the first time we talked about this story, he said, I believe what Jesus wrote down was the rest of the law. I said, and the man also. I don't know. It doesn't say what he wrote down. We'll find out one day, but I think that's probably it. 
Either way, they weren't, they weren't concerned with justice. You realize the enemy doesn't really want justice. He wants to accuse. And so they bring her. They throw her at the feet of Jesus in the center of the temple. It says she was caught in the act. They dragged her there. I'm sure they didn't clothe her. So here she lies in the center of the temple, naked, and with her sin being announced to everybody who could hear. And there's a crowd gathered, and they've already got their stones ready to kill her. And Jesus does this one amazing thing. It says he kneels down next to her and begins to write in the dirt. Maybe he knelt down to write only because it gave him an opportunity to get between her and the accuser. To get between them and the stones. So there was no way they were stoning her without stoning him first. Maybe he placed himself in between the voice of the accuser and the accused because he believed that he had a truth that could make both free. And you realize he's not just concerned with the woman on the ground. He's just as concerned with the hearts of the Pharisees. And you know this because he doesn't just say to the woman, I don't condemn you, go and sin no more. He asks the Pharisees a question first. He says, let the one of you that has no sin, let the one of you that's never needed forgiveness, let the one of you that's never needed grace, let the one of you that's never done something wrong, let, if, if that's you, you can step forward and throw the first stone. What's he saying? Examine your own heart, and maybe you'd understand that this woman here is in need of something that you've been in need of your whole life as well. Why? He wants to change the way they think. He doesn't just want to give them an answer. You understand, he's not interested so much in just giving you an answer as he is changing the way that you think so that you can come to those conclusions yourself. He says, examine your own heart. And you might find that you've needed the very thing that you're wanting to deny this woman. And when you see that, it'll change the way you see her. Because when you see your own need for grace, you see her need for grace. And you no longer want to stone her. And, and it points this out in the Bible, and I think it's for a reason. It says, and they left their stones and went, one by one, the oldest first. And you know, the longer you've lived, the more you understand your need for grace. My friend Bruce told me this. He said, you know who the best parent is? It's a 20-year-old guy that doesn't have children. Before you've lived and experienced some things, you got it all figured out. The longer you live, the more you realize your need for grace. The longer I parent, the more I find myself on my knees saying, God, please cover with grace the places I've missed it. The longer I live, the less inclined I am to want to pick up a stone when I know my own need for grace. And, but here's the thing that I really felt like God was speaking to us is that there's a woman on the ground being accused right now all around us. It's his bride. And they're hearing the voice of condemnation and they're hearing what they've done wrong being brought up and thrown in their face in front of everybody and they're being made to feel shameful and guilty because of it. And Jesus isn't calling us to simply be like the Pharisees and not 
throw our stones because we're not called to follow the example of the Pharisees. We're called to follow the example of Jesus. And so many times when we hear this story taught, it's taught to us from the perspective of remember your own need for grace so that you will then put your stones down and walk away the way the Pharisees did. But I'm saying he's calling us to a higher place of saying, I've actually called you to be the one who places themselves between the accused and the Pharisees because you've been given something that the Pharisees didn't have. Turn your Bibles to, uh, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I am one sentence ahead of you guys right now. Believe that. I had none of this before I got up here, or before I came here today. 2 Corinthians verse, uh, five, or chapter 5, starting in verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What is the ministry of reconciliation? It's this. Namely, that God was in Christ Jesus, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us this word of reconciliation. You understand that, that, that you're not called to follow the example of the Pharisees and put your stones down and walk away and leave the woman laying there. You're called to follow the example of Jesus and kneel down next to her and give her what's missing. And in the same hand, have the heart for the Pharisees so that you can actually give them what they're lacking that brought them to the place of wanting to stone somebody as well. It's not good enough for the church to just not throw stones. I mean, if that's where you're at, okay, put the stone down. But then ask God, why do I have a stone in my hand to begin with? And why would I ever find myself on the side of the accuser? There's one who's called the accuser of the brethren in the Bible. His name is Lucifer. He does the job well. He doesn't need our help. He's got, he's got a sign in his window that says now hiring, but don't, don't apply for that job. He doesn't need your help. How sad would it be if Christians found themselves living a life that fit the description of the one that we're here to destroy the works of. Because he's called the accuser of the brethren. So when they drag her in front of Jesus and throw her on the ground, it's him that's accusing her. That's why Jesus asks her, he says, is there no one left to accuse you? He's not just talking to her. He's talking to the enemy, to the whole demonic realm that are all watching and he declares, because they're all gone. He declares to the woman, but more than that, he declares to every demon in hell that's watching, then neither do I condemn you. You go and sin no more. See, he's given to us this ministry of reconciliation, which is this, that God is in Christ Jesus, reconciling the world to themselves, no longer holding their sins against them. Does that mean that we never bring up to people's attention if they do something that's outside of the will of God? No, we absolutely do. Jesus said, if you see your brother in sin, you know, Paul talked about if you see someone in sin, James says if you see someone in sin. But the way that we do it is with an answer in our heart rather than a stone in our hand. It's because we believe we have what's necessary so that they don't find themselves there again. We believe that we actually have the ministry of reconciliation that's been given to us, that we can go to them and say, hey, just so you know, God doesn't condemn you for this. He actually isn't counting your sins against you because he reconciled you to himself through Christ Jesus. The rest of that verse, chapter uh, verse 20 says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Who's we? It's the church. 
It's not just pastors. It's not just Paul. You realize Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. He didn't say build stained glass windows and name churches after me and call me St. Paul. He never said to do that. We do that because it makes us feel better because then we say, well, our life doesn't look like him, but he's St. Paul. We do that because it makes us feel better to name a church after somebody than actually just follow the one that they were following. It's truth. Because if he's St. Paul, then I can divorce myself from that idea. But what if we're all saints? What if the very church that calls him St. Paul, he actually wrote to and said to the saints, what if he was writing us a letter today? Do you think he'd start it differently than he did 2,000 years ago when he wrote to the church at Ephesus and said to the saints of the church of Ephesus? No, he'd say the same thing. To the saints of the church at Outreach. So he's a saint, but so are you. That's why we're all without excuse. He has nothing available to him that we don't have available to us. If so, then that's a frustrating God in heaven who asks something of us that he doesn't enable us to do, and he would never do that, ever. Ever. That's why Jesus said, it's better for your sake that I go. And when he said it's better that I go, he meant for us, but he also meant for the world around us. Because he came not just for us, he came for the world. For God so loved the world, he sent his son. So when Jesus says, it's better for you that I go, because if I go, I can send him the comfort of the spirit of truth. And when he comes, he'll lead you and guide you into all truth. He was literally saying, it's better for you that the Holy Spirit is here than me physically in the flesh. But he also meant for eternity, for the world, it would be better if he went, because then the Holy Spirit could come and he could live inside of every one of us rather than just in one person. Rather than there being one anointed person that people bring everyone to, every single person's anointed with the same anointing. Because as the Father sent him into the world, so he also sent us. So there's a woman on the ground being accused. It's okay, guys being called a woman. You're the bride. Everywhere else, ladies have to read that they're brothers. Everywhere you go, think about this. Everywhere you go, there's people who have been dragged by their arms, thrown onto the ground, made to feel shamed, guilty, and alone. You realize this is they threw her in the center. They didn't throw her on the sides. Why? Because there's people on the sides. The enemy always wants to isolate and make you feel like it's only you. Always wants to make you feel alone. Always wants to get you separated from everybody else and make you feel like it's just you, like you're isolated, like you're alone. Throws her in the center, away from everybody. Jesus, what's the first thing he does? Walks over. Now all of a sudden, guess what? She's not alone anymore. When we run because of the sin that people find themselves in, we leave them alone. Jesus didn't do that. The first thing he does, the first thing he does, he goes and he kneels down by her. Why? He wants her to know, you're not alone. I'm here. What if you just walked up to somebody? You didn't have to have the perfect thing to say, and you just trusted that God would give you what you need in the moment. Do you realize there's a part in the Bible that says, when they bring you before the court, don't worry about what you will say in that day, for I will give you the words to speak. If we believe that, then maybe all we have to do is find somebody who feels ashamed, guilty, alone, and they can just come kneel down next to them and say, I'm here, and you're not alone. I'm here. What does that do? It cuts off the voice of the accuser. It puts you in between them and the people that are making the accusation. And now you have something that you can offer them because you've been given the ministry of reconciliation. What does that look like? Practically, this is what it looks like. 
and I, and I mean this, and I feel like God is saying, listen, there's a, there, there is a bride that has been dragged to the center of the room, has been accused, has been condemned, and has been threatened with death, and there's voices all around that are gnashing their teeth with hatred in their hearts. And I'm calling you to be like my son. So it looks like just literally, hey, I'm here. You're not alone. And I want you to know something. God's not holding your sin against you. He's not waiting for you to give that up so that he could love you. He didn't come so that he could love you. He came because he did. For God so loved you that he sent his son, not so that he could. In fact, while you were doing the thing that they're accusing you of, God looked down and saw your life and thought it was worth the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, even when you were at your worst. Why? Because he doesn't identify you by what you've done wrong. He sees you as who he created you to be, and you were created for so much more than this. And I just want to tell you, as if God, hear me as if this is God saying it. This is what your Bible says that we're called to do. Hear me as if God himself is saying this to you. He's not counting your sins against you. He's already reconciled you to himself. So I'm begging you, but it's not me. It's the Father through me begging you. Be reconciled to him. Receive what he died on a cross for you to receive and what he rose again for you to have. Where's the one who's going to accuse you now when you know that the Father who created you, the God of the universe, isn't accusing you anymore? How can you hear a condemning voice if you hear a voice from him saying he's not condemning you? What other voice matters? Where's your accusers now? I don't have any. Neither does God condemn you. Now that thing that you've been giving yourself to, that he died for you to be set free from, don't do that. Not because you don't want to get stoned, but because you understand that he is so much better for you than what you're giving yourself to. Not because you're afraid of punishment, because there's no fear of punishment in love, but because you love him and you understand that he created you for so much more than this. You've never been less than loved. The cross is proof that you were always loved. It's not proof that you were a sinner. If you're a sinner, what, does, what is there to redeem? He had to come because, we, because man sinned, absolutely. But if that's all you were, then how can he redeem anything if you were a sinner? And that's what you really were. When you get redeemed, guess what you still are? You're a sinner. He came because that's not what you were created to be. You were created in the image and the likeness of the Father, and sin came and destroyed that, but Jesus came and said what was done through the disobedience of the one man made many this way, through the obedience of another man, the second Adam, Jesus. How much more then will the many be made righteous? It's just which one do you give? No, listen. It's just which one are you giving the credit for for the way that your life looks? Are you giving the credit for the sin of Adam that changed the way that you were created? Or are you giving credit to the obedience of Jesus that restored you back to the original created value as a son and a daughter of God who's able to present you before the Father, holy, blameless, upright, and beyond reproach? And when you believe that for yourself, then you'll have an easy time believing that for others. You know part of the reason the church doesn't kneel down next to the sinner is because they think they belong there with her. And they think they have nothing to offer her. You belonged there, but you were born again. You no longer belong there. The voice of the accuser no longer has a place in you because your past has been covered by the blood of Jesus and all things have passed away and behold, everything has become new. And the only way the enemy can get you to kneel down next to her in guilt and shame and condemnation is by reminding you of your past, which is why when Paul gives us a timeline two different places in the Bible, in Romans and in Corinthians, he says things present are things to come. Think about it. He's making this expansive list. He says, I am convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God. 
not angels or demons, right? Angels or principalities. He says height or depth, the things uh, present, things to come, um, um, the world or Paul or Paulus or Cephas. He gives all these different extremes, right? Life and death, angels, demons, height, depth. When he gives a timeline, he doesn't say things past or things to come. He says things present or things future. Why? Because to Paul, the present was all that a Christian had. Your timeline starts now and goes forward into the future. Everything from your past has been covered by the blood of Jesus. It has to be because it says that all things passed away and behold, everything became new and his mercies are new every day. Every day. So when you wake up in the morning and you pray that prayer, he's not listening to you and going, yeah, but you said that yesterday. Yeah, but you said that last month. He's not doing that because he's not keeping a record of wrongs. Why? Because he's love and love doesn't do that. Come on, this is all in your Bible. I promise you every bit of it. If love doesn't consider a wrong suffered, then when he hears your prayer, he hears it as if it's the first time you've said it and he hopes all things and believes all things because that's what love does. And he goes, yes, that's my son. Do you get it right every single day? No, that's why there's grace. Grace covers where we miss and empowers us to not keep missing. It changes us. It doesn't just make pasts okay. It makes the present and the future possible. It's an empowering force in our lives to live the life he called us to live because he's not a frustrating father that would ask something of us that we're not capable of doing. He said that. He said, don't frustrate your children. If he tells earthly fathers not to frustrate their kids, I promise you, he is a better father, a heavenly father, doesn't frustrate his kids, meaning what? Everything he's asked of you, he's empowered you to do. He's never asked you to do something and then sat back in heaven laughing at you and saying, I can't believe they think they could do that. Ever. No, he's in heaven with new mercy every single day, cheering you on along with the great cloud of witnesses saying, come on, today's the day. Yeah, get it today. And I just felt like, honestly, I want to break from your mind that what you're called to is the level of love that the Pharisees had, which meant that they put their stones down and left her alone. Because they still left her alone with no hope for a better future. You realize that any gospel that leaves you alone with no hope of better in the future besides when you die is not the gospel that Jesus preached? It's not. It's not for one day when you die. If that's the case, then death is your Savior, not Jesus. Think about that. If all the promises in every way that he's asked you to live is only possible when you die, then death is your Savior. Last time I checked, it said that he's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. You're called not just to be like the Pharisees. And a lot of people are saying that, like, you know, put down your stones. You're not called to ever have a stone. You gave up the right to pick up a stone the minute you asked God to put his right to pick up a stone away through what Jesus did. You can't on one side of your mouth say, God, I'm so thankful that you said that you would forgive my sin and remember it no more. So far as the east is from the west, so far shall my sin be removed from you. And you're in Christ, which means what? It means your sin is removed as far from you as the east is from the west. How far away is that? As far as it can get and getting farther every day. Because you're in Christ. You're seated in heavenly places in Christ. So that means if he's removed your sin as far from him as the east is from the west, if you're in Christ, that means your sin is removed from you as far as the east is from the west. And if you believe that, you can't out of one side of your mouth thank him for that and out of the other side of your mouth hold on to the right to pick up a stone and make an accusation against somebody. You can't do that. 
You're not called to be the Pharisees that put down their stones and walk away and leave someone alone. You're called to be like Jesus and bend down next to them where they're at and show them that there's actually a better way and show them that the Father's not holding this against them and show them how they can live. That's what you're called to. It's not to put down your stones. It's to never pick them up because you're not in the business of making accusation. You're in the business of rescuing the accused because you're called to follow Jesus, not the Pharisees. He's our example in all things, not them. And I promise you, if you've got stones in your hand, he would get down between you and the person that you're accusing with those stones and ask you the same question. He would. But he really thinks there's a better way that you can live where you wouldn't be sitting there with a stone in your hand. You'd actually be on your knees next to the person, even if what they did was against you. Because guess what? Whose law had she broke? Whose law? God's law. Who was Jesus? Eternally God, fully man. She sinned against him, yet he's the one who knelt down next to her, showed her grace and mercy, said, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. It's one thing if you hear a story about someone who sinned against someone else and you come alongside them, but what happens when the person's you? What happens when the person they sinned against is you? Because ultimately, every single one of us, no matter what we've done, sinned against him, yet he knelt down next to us in our sin and didn't condemn us. And then he called us to be like him. That means we love the people who are making the accusation, and we love the one who the accusation's been made against. And we get between the two. We give the one a question that causes them to search their own heart and understand what forgiveness actually looks like. We tell the other one something that sets them free so that they understood that they're forgiven. And in neither of those cases are we to pick up stones. His church is being thrown on the ground by the accuser and accused and made to feel shameful and guilty. And the response that we give will determine whether or not we're like the Pharisees and he has to actually get between us and the accused. Come on, think about the heartbreak that must cause him when the very ones he gave his life for are now picking up stones and he's actually having to kneel down between me and the accused. But think about the excitement it must cause his heart when he sees us kneel down next to them and represent him to a lost, dying world, to a hurt and abused shamed, guilty person. God, I just thank you for that. I thank you so much that you change our hearts, Father. Holy Spirit, that you're inside of us, leading us and guiding us in all truth. And I ask that you would lead us to that place of on our knees for the accused with a gospel of reconciliation in our heart and nothing but love in our hands and in our mouths. I ask that we would represent you, Jesus. That we would actually follow your lead and be for those who are accused or caught up in sin what you were for us when we were there. In Jesus' name, amen.